0: Thanks for joining us for this message from Awakened Church. We believe in the power of God's Word and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. We are closing out Ephesians chapter 4 in our a series, Little by Little Finding Your Identity in Christ. And the reason why it's called Little by Little. It's because we're going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. And what we were saying is that once we break this book apart, every little bit of it, we will know who we are. Then we'll know what to do in Christ. And right now we're in the practical side of Ephesians chapter four. We're learning about who we are. And so we've talked about things like our identity, who we are in Christ, and talked about uh, who we are as a church, our unity within the church. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about our giftings. And last week, we talked about things we need to put off and put on, that we once had an old nature, an old self, and old ways of doing things, but we need to not do those things anymore. We need to put on Jesus. And today, Paul is kind of continuing with that theme of putting off and putting on. But he's going to narrow it in just a little bit and what we're to put off and put on and how we relate to one another. Anytime Paul starts to give us examples of how we are to live as followers of Jesus, he often then talks about our relationship with other followers of Jesus. And I think that's important to note because I think for us in our culture and in church culture, we have this idea that following Jesus is just about me and Jesus. Jesus. We really don't need anybody else, and occasionally we'll sprinkle in a little church service here or there when it fits our schedule or when the stars align or when it's nice outside or when it's the most convenient. But we've talked about this since the beginning of the year. The church isn't something that we just go to, some event that we attend, something we check off on our list of things to do, but it's a people that we belong to. And so, uh, that's, that's the idea of church. And so this, this idea that it's just me and Jesus would be very foreign to Paul. In fact, Paul uh, talks about it. The Bible talks a lot about it. Even Jesus in Matthew, his most famous sermons, his sermon on the Mount, he talks more about how we relate with anybody else in those sermons. So according to the Bible, according to Paul and according to Jesus, relationships matter when it comes to following Jesus. Jesus. Again, church isn't something that you attend. It's a people that you belong to. It's people you are committed to. And so Paul starts off by saying that how we are to live as Christ, that we're to put off and put on some things as we relate to one another. In fact, the title of today's message is Simple Steps to Following Jesus. In fact, he gives us five things that we as followers need to put off and put on when we're following Jesus and how we relate to one another. So if you would look at verse 25, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbors, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Today's passage is very practical in its nature. The message is going to be very practical because Paul, in this uh, section of verses, he's very much like, don't do this, do this, and here is why. So I want to unpack these five simple steps of following Jesus. And the first step that he gives us, the first uh, simple step, he says, replace lying with truth telling. Look again, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, that word falsehood could be translated lying. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We need to replace lying with truth telling. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you here today would say that you've lied in the last 24 hours? You can raise your hands, keep them up, keep them up. All right, you can put your hands down. The rest of you, you're a bunch of liars. All right, you didn't put your hands I know you lied, all right? You just lied right now. You lied right to me. <laughs> and the reason why I know this is because I did some research on lying this week, and it said that the average person lies about four times a day. That's the average person. Another study I read by the uh, University of Massachusetts said that 60% of people cannot meet a new person and not lie to them within the first 10 minutes of having a conversation with them. (laughs) So 60% of you are going to meet somebody new and you're going to tell a lie. All right. Like that's what that means. We tell lies and our culture lying is so widespread that we don't even admit to lying when we lie. We say things, you hear celebrities and you hear uh, politicians all the time say, well, I misspoke or I misled you. And so we've become so used to lying that it doesn't even seem to bother us anymore. But I want to show you exactly how God feels about lying. Proverbs twelve twenty two says this, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in those who tell the truth. The word detest could be translated to mean something disgusting. It means something to make one nauseous. So when we lie on an average of four times a day, or we meet that new person and we tell a lie, it actually makes God nauseous. It makes him sick. He hates it. He detests lying lips. And so Paul is telling us here, you need to throw that off. You don't need to be about that life lying all the time. Since you know Jesus, you need to be truth tellers. I've heard it said that you're never more like the devil than when you're lying. And I think the reason why God hates lying so much is because it reminds him of his enemy. And I think when we lie, it makes God nauseous because we are reminding God of who his enemy is because we're speaking the language of the devil. And so this has to do with more than just telling deliberate lies. There are subtle ways of lying. For example, flattery is a subtle way of lying. You know what flattery is. It's the opposite of backbiting. Backbiting, I say things behind your back. In flattery, I say things to your face. You know what it's like. You've done it before. You say, oh, you're so beautiful, or you're so handsome, or you're so smart, you're so athletic. You're the smartest person in the world. Now, do you believe any of that? Absolutely not. Do you think they're a complete idiot? Yes, you do. (laughs) But we flatter people all the time. And sometimes the reason why we flatter people is because we want something from them. You go to your boss, boss, you're the smartest person in the world. I mean, nobody foresaw that happening. You're so smart. Why do we say that? Because we want a raise, we want a promotion. School's coming to an end and some of you are like, man, teacher, you are the best in the world. I don't care what some of the other students are saying right now. Like you are the best in the world. Why? Because you want to bump your grade up a little bit. You want a little bit of love in that department. We're lying to them. We say one thing to their face and when we're not around them, we're like, they're an idiot. Like, can you even believe them right now? And that's a form of lying. Then there's the form of uh, lying as an exaggeration. I think this one's really easy for us to do. Because we exaggerate our skills to get a promotion or stretch the facts just a little bit. It's kind of like when you go fishing and you say, I caught a really big fish and you make everybody think it's this big, but it's really only this big, you know? Like we do it all the time. We exaggerate. And we do this in church all the time. What do we do? We come in today looking all nice, put together. We want people to think we have it all together, but in reality, our lives are falling all apart. We don't have it together. You know what it's like, someone in your awakened group who care about you, who ask you, and they go, how's your marriage doing? How's raising kids? You know, they'll, they'll ask you, how's life? How's that job treating you? And what do you say? Fine. It's fine. It's all good. We're good. And you know that it's not fine at all. We lie about who we are and about how we are doing. Then there's another form of lying. It's lying in silence. And here's what I mean by that. This is um, maybe you're around a group of people and they're just kind of talking and and they're saying something about someone, you know, or a friend that, you know, and they're just slamming this person. And you're just sitting there letting them do that instead of standing up saying that's not who they are. That's not what they said. It said you just sit there in silence and it's slander by silence. Paul says we need to put off our tendency towards falsehood, towards lying. And we should put on speaking the truth with one another. See, we need to be people who tell each other the entire truth, not just partial truth. If you're not doing well, say you're not doing well. If you're struggling here today, say the struggle is real. You don't have to tell everybody in the world everything that's going on in your life, but you have people who care about you, who want to help you and come alongside of you, so let them do it. And here's why. Paul says that we need to lie because we're members of one another. Now, Paul's not looking at us saying, you shouldn't lie because lying is bad. What he's saying is that when we lie, we actually hinder the church from being able to function the way that it should. And we know that because in verse 25, he says the word members, which is a biological term translated to mean limbs or organs, So Paul, again, he's using this metaphor of the body, the human body, and he's pointing out that we cannot function if all of the different parts of the body are not communicating the way that they're supposed to be communicating. It's self-destructive, it's self-defeating, and we don't function in a healthy way. For example, people in your awakening group or your ministry team They ask you how you're doing And you say fine But you're really not fine You're actually preventing them From being able to rally around you And to help you And to encourage you And to be there for you If you have a problem With somebody in the church And you're pretending That you don't have that problem Or you're acting like You don't have that problem With that person What you're actually doing Is you're preventing unity From happening When you are a truth teller You are imitating God But when you are lying You're imitating Satan. So we need to put off lying and be truth tellers. Here's the second one. Replace sinful anger with righteous anger. It says in verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We need to replace sinful anger with righteous anger. Now, I'm kind of angry right now that it's summertime and it's hot in this room, okay? But in my anger, I will not sin. (laughs) But here's Paul chooses his words very carefully. He says, be angry and do not sin. See, anger in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. Anger at its core is just something we feel when we see things or witness things that aren't the way that they should be. Again, we live in a broken and imperfect world, and there are plenty of things to remind us that things aren't the way they should be in our world. So anger is not necessarily sinful. I mean, we can all be reminded of the time when Jesus in the New Testament, he's, uh, he sees the Pharisees. He gets angry when he sees the Pharisees twisting God to the people. When he goes into the temple and he sees all the money changers, he flips the tables over and he's got a whip ready to drive them all out. My kids love that story about angry Jesus a little bit. Jesus got angry. So anger in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. It's okay to get angry because, again, there are a lot of things in our world that go on that should make us angry. We should be angry when we see our country going down the tubes morally and spiritually. We should get angry when we see the church having compromise, affecting our witness to the world. We should get angry when we see families falling apart. Those kinds of things should make us angry. But Paul adds this warning, do not sin in that anger. Because when we get angry, we're more prone to do sinful things that we otherwise would not have done. So maybe you're here today and you've done some really stupid things in your anger. Maybe you've destroyed a relationship in your anger. Maybe you destroyed your marriage in your anger. Maybe you said some things that in your anger that you can't take back. Maybe last night you were walking in the living room and you stepped on a Lego Lego, and you said some things you shouldn't have said in your anger. Maybe you stubbed your toe this week on the couch and you're lashed out on everybody. Who put the couch there? You know, in your anger, you said some things you shouldn't say. Or better yet, maybe you were on 24, either going west or east. Who cares? Because it is the road of nothing but road rage. And so maybe you acted out in ways that you should not have acted out this week. The reality is that anger clouds our judgment And it makes us hyper emotional and makes us say things and do things that we otherwise would not say and do. And I think we all can give a little experience based amen right there, right? I don't think I'm the only one who struggles in this area. And Paul's like, it's okay to be angry, but do not sin in it, even if it's a righteous anger. Paul says, do not let it become destructive to other people. So how do we do that? Well, he gives us some very practical advice. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I don't think Paul is talking literally here. I don't think he's saying like, hey, make sure that you settle everything that you're angry about before you can ever go to bed. I think he's speaking figuratively here. He's saying that um, it's the idea that the longer that you sit in your anger, the more sinful it can become. So instead of letting your anger get worse and worse and worse in your life, you need to deal with it. If you're angry with someone, you need to go and talk to them about it. And in your anger, do not sin. And here's why. Because he says that word opportunity. Don't give Satan the opportunity. The word opportunity can mean stronghold. And what he's trying to talk about here is this war imagery. It's a picture of an invading army coming in and finding a city that it can take over so that it can launch strikes across the other regions around it. And that's exactly how Satan operates. If one person lets their anger turn into bitterness, Satan will use that to destroy other relationships. He uses that person to create drama and conflict and bitterness in other people. And before you know it, Satan is just setting up shop and he's wrecking havoc on all of these relationships, all of these people around this person. And Paul says that by refusing to deal with your own anger, you are helping Satan destroy the community around you. When we don't deal with our anger, we're allowing Satan to destroy the body of Christ, the church, and and all of the relationships around us. Paul says we need to deal with our anger. But then he moves on to a third thing. He says we need to replace stealing with giving. Verse 28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, at this point in the passage, many of us go, oh, thank goodness, we're at a point of a breather. Like, uh, you know, I, I lie. Okay, I mean, I didn't raise my hand, but I do lie. Or, you know, I deal with some anger issues. And so I can admit to that. But at least this is one thing I could say I'm not struggling with. At least I could say I'm not stealing anything. And I think it's pretty safe to say in a room of this size that many of us aren't trying to earn our income by robbing a bank or robbing a convenience store or anything like that. And if you are doing that, you should stop. Like, that's not a good thing to do. You know, make sure you right those wrongs. But many of us, we're not earning our income by stealing. And so we go, oh, thank goodness, I can breathe a little bit during this passage. But just as there's subtle ways of lying, there are also subtle ways of stealing. For example, have you ever rounded way up on an invoice of hours worked? You know, you work two hours, but you're like, man, all that time, it was a pain in the butt to deal with it, so I'm going to invoice them four hours. Or you're working for a company, and so there's work to be done, but you're not doing the work. Instead, what are you doing? You're wasting company time by checking Facebook and Instagram, right? Right? Maybe you saw some office supplies. You need some new pens. So you steal some new pens. You know, you're stealing those kinds of things. Maybe you earned some money and you don't want to claim it so that the government doesn't tax you more. Or you went to the uh, store recently and you bought some stuff and the clerk gave you more money back than what was actually owed you. And you kept it because you're like, I'm sticking it to the man. You know, like they don't need this money. It's corporate greed. I'm going to keep this. This is a gift. I was reminded, uh, in fact, this last week that um, Jen needed a comforter at Bed Bath & Beyond. And this was during Black Friday, uh, Black Friday of 2020. And she saw this comforter that was heavily discounted. And she's like, well, we need a new one. And so she was like, let's just go and buy this. And I was like, fantastic. Let's do it. Because uh, So she went and she bought a queen size comforter. And she went, Oh, I meant to get a king size comforter. Now, the reason why is because she's a cover hog. So at least I need something. And uh, two, uh, we're hoping in Jesus' name that one day we'll get a king size bed. So we're preparing for the future a little bit. And uh, so uh, we buy this comforter. And she's like, Well, I need to go exchange it. So she goes in, she exchanges it, and she comes back out, and she looks really confused. I said, like, is there something wrong? Like, what happened? And she was like, well, they gave me double what this comforter is, is worth. And I said, praise the Lord, what's to eat? Like, that was my, that was my reaction. <laughs> and she was like, no, this is wrong. I said, no, this is a blessing. Like, what are you talking about? Bed, Bath & Beyond makes plenty of money. they are not going to miss this. And so she was like, no, I got to make this right. And I was like, man. And so she goes in and she talks to the manager And he looks at it and he goes, nope, everything is right. And we walked out double of what we actually paid. We actually made money on the transaction. And she came back and she's like, this feels wrong. I said, no, it's a blessing. Trust me. I talked to the Lord about it. He said, yes, it's a blessing. I need to eat. (laughs) But even if you don't struggle with all those things, I want you to understand the contrast that Paul is making in this verse. Because he he doesn't say that we should go from stealing to earning an honest income. Says the opposite of stealing is giving generously. Now, the majority of us, again, we have jobs, we're earning an honest income. We need to keep that up, keep doing those things. But I bet many of us, if we wake up in the morning and we're being honest with ourselves, we don't wake up jumping out of bed going, I'm so thankful for this job, because now I can be a blessing to some other people. I don't think any of us do that. I think if we look at our money, we look at our budgets, it doesn't reflect a heart of generosity. What Paul is saying here is that God isn't just necessarily interested in making you financially responsible. You could be incredibly smart and responsible with your money, but you could be completely ignoring God with your money as well. And if you're ignoring God with your money, the Bible tells us that we're actually stealing from him. And how do I know that? Because Malachi chapter 3 verse 8 says, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? And then he goes on to say in verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. What this verse is saying is that when we hold on to our money, when we think it's our money, when we don't have open hands to what God has given us and we close our hands and we hold on to it and we say, well, I don't feel like I could be generous. I don't feel like I have enough to be generous. I don't feel led to be giving anymore or I don't feel led to give in the first place. What we're doing is we're stealing from God. Now, obviously, God doesn't need your money. And you might hear that and you go, well, then why does Jesus talk about it most of the time in the New Testament? Why is God talking about it here? Why does God care so much about my finances if he doesn't need it? And the reason, I, the reason why is because he wants what it represents. He wants your heart. God is testing your faith. He's testing your priorities and he's testing your gratitude. Gratitude. So when you give money to God, you're showing gratitude for the past, saying, God, I know I would not have this job and would not be here if it weren't for you. When you give your money, it's prioritizing the present, saying, God, I want you to always be first in my life. And when you give money to God, it's a statement of faith in the future, saying, God, I believe you will keep your promises. All that tithing is, is a test of your trust. Do you trust God enough to say that with what he's given you? That God, you've been faithful in the past, present, and future. God often tests us because he wants us to become more like him. We talked about it last week, that we were created in the image and likeness of God. And so we're to reflect that. And so giving is a very practical way, a very tangible way for us to demonstrate the reflection of the greatest giver of our God, that because God gave his first and his best, we then give our first and our best back to him. So some of us were here today and we need to take that first step. We need to move towards financial responsibility. We actually need to budget when we had no budget, we actually need to be living within our means and not outside of our means. And I love that as a church, in a couple of weeks, we get the opportunity to come alongside of you and hopefully ease some of that pressure and some of that stress that money has in our life. We have that financial peace class that's going to be happening in a couple weeks. And I'm excited to be able to come alongside because God does care about making you smart with your money. I think he does care that we need to be um, responsible with everything that God has given us. And so I love that we get to come alongside and help you and and encourage you and strengthen you. Now, is it going to be an overnight fix? No, but it's going to give you the tools to know how to manage your resources, your finances. And so some of you need to take the first step by just giving a little bit, creating and cultivating that habit, taking that class. But there's others of you who read this and you go, well, all right, let's move along here. You're getting a little sweaty. I'm getting a little sweaty. Like there's plenty of things. I've got this down. I'm giving faithfully. I'm financially responsible. I'm smart. I'm smart. But maybe for you today, you just need to complete that circle. Maybe you need to move from financially responsible, faithfully giving to radical generosity. Replace stealing with giving. Here's the fourth thing. Replace corrupt talk with talk that builds. Verse 29 says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Replace corrupt talk with talk that builds. The word corrupt here literally means to spoil. It's a word used for fruit or meat that has gone bad. And so verse 29 is talking about any kind of talk that is rotten, that has gone bad. That includes uh, off-color jokes, profanity, dirty stories, vulgarity, uh, lying, gossip, abusive talk, slander. Somebody once asked, or somebody asked me last service, does this include memes? I said, well, it depends. Are they dirty memes? And so that does, because sometimes you know what it is. You read on the internet and you hit send and you go, Ugh, I don't know if I should have done that or not. Yes, it could include memes, all right? And so there's a list of things that we're not supposed to have that talk that is any kind of corrupt or spoiling effect. It's funny to me because as a pastor, I have uh, people often, they'll tell a story or they'll tell me, uh, they'll say some bad words and things like that. And they'll go, oh, sorry, pastor. I didn't mean to say that. And it's kind of weird and I feel kind of sometimes awkward to me because I hear and I go, do you not think I don't know what those words are or maybe before Christ never even said those words before? Like, I get it. And furthermore, why are you apologizing to me? I'm not the one who's necessarily offended. You're offending God with the talk that you're having. Corrupt talk does not nourish you. It only makes you sick. And I know that this is something we all struggle with. There's times that our lives where we say things that we say uh, cuss words as a pronoun, a noun, an adjective, a verb. We've got a lot of ways to make these words work. And so it's a struggle for us. But to help us, the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart does the mouth speak. And so if you struggle with this, just be reminded that you need to be filling your heart with other things. That, that these kind of corrupt talk, the spoiling effect should not be the mark of a Christian. Our talk should build others up. Sometimes I don't think we realize just how powerful our mouth and our words actually can be. We say things without even thinking, and people remember them. This week, I was reminded of times when people said things about me that I've held on to, that have hurt me, that have scarred me. I'm sure in this moment, you could think of some things that a teacher or a parent or spouse or sibling Or even a pastor said to you, and you've held on to those things, and they've hurt you, and they've scarred you. You still remember them to this day. That's how powerful words are. I like to think of our words kind of like a sledgehammer. We just swing away without thinking at all, and we're just swinging away. And when we're done, we stop and look around, and what do we see? A pile of relational rubble when you carelessly sling your words around and tear people down, you are going to uh, have relationships that suffer. As followers of Jesus, this isn't how we're to use our words. We need to ask ourselves, do I want to wound or do I want to heal? Do I want to help or do I want to hurt? There will be conflict in your life. You will have conflict and you have a choice to either hurt or heal with your words. And you might be sitting here today and you might be thinking, well, Nate, you know, If I applied Ephesians 4.29 to my life, well, then I wouldn't talk at all. Like, I'd have nothing to say. Good! Zip it! Do us all a favor and don't say anything. I think the Bible would tell us uh, that we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. If we listened more and spoke less, I think we'd all be better off. And then Paul finally says, replace resentment with compassion. Verse 30. He says, "And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ or as God in Christ forgave you." Many of you know I have 3 boys, Brody, Asher, Dawson, And I do know that the first letter of their uh, names actually does spell out bad. That's a complete accident. And so I often pray for them going, I hope they don't turn out bad. So you can pray for me in that as well. But they've all been messy eaters. Asher, probably the cleanest eater. Um, But I think Brody, my oldest, and Dawson, my youngest, compete for who can be the biggest slob uh, when they eat sometimes. And uh, I just remember telling the boys, Brody would be eating breakfast. I'd say, Brody, don't wipe the syrup on your shirt. Use this napkin. I would tell Asher, Asher, at lunchtime, Asher, don't wipe the applesauce on the carpet. Use this napkin. I look at Dawson, Dawson, at dinnertime, don't uh, use your hair to wipe the peanut butter off. Use this napkin. I'm always telling him, use this napkin, use this napkin. And I tell you that because I think it's similar to what Paul is doing here in this passage. Because I think we have this temptation to read this list and go, okay, I get it. Lying isn't bad, but what about this? Or we read this and we go, okay, I get it. Saying bad words, that's a bad thing, but what about this? And so we have this tendency to take good instruction out of the Bible and we try to figure out all the exceptions to them, just like my kids try to figure out all the exceptions to a napkin. What Paul is trying to say here is just in case you were confused... Just in case I didn't make it clear enough and I didn't make it obvious enough, I want you to put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, all malice, anything that resembles those types of things. I want you to just put them off, put them away. Essentially, you could summarize that list as resentful attitudes. So we're to put off resentful attitudes and put on compassion. But what does compassion look like? It looks like kindness and forgiveness. Paul says that we should forgive one another as God and Christ forgave us. Can you imagine one day when we get to heaven and there's Jesus and he kept a record of everything wrong that we've ever done in our life. And he goes, all right, I've been waiting for this moment because I got a lot of problems with you people. And he just starts reading down the list. That's not how God operates at all. He doesn't keep a record of wrongs like many of us do. Can you imagine if Jesus were quick to hold grudges or lash out or be passive-aggressive like many of us are? But that's not how Jesus rolls. He extends forgiveness and kindness to everyone. To those of us who are his children, when we look at this list and we go, I failed so many times at this, he gives us kindness and forgiveness. To those of you who don't even know Jesus and aren't even walking with Jesus, he's giving you kindness and forgiveness. And so Paul says, we need to operate as Jesus operates. We need to follow his lead with kindness and forgiveness. See, this message, this passage is very practical in nature. It's mostly a bunch of put off this, put this on, and here's why. But I know there's some of you here today who might not be walking with the Lord. You might be far from Christ. And so you're hearing this and you go, well, that's what I thought Christianity was all about. A bunch of rules. See, I knew it. And there's my proof text right there. A bunch of do's and don'ts. That's what Christianity is all about. And I would tell you it's so much more than that. Because I don't think Paul would have us read this list and want us to leave with going, well, here's do's and don'ts. I don't think that's the heart of what Paul is trying to get at. I think what Paul is trying to get at is actually in chapter 5, verse 1. And he says, therefore, which means everything that we just talked about, in light of everything that's in verses 25 through 32, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God like good kids do. Paul doesn't want us to leave off saying, good luck. I hope you can follow two of those. That's not what he's doing at all. He says, you already have a a God who is worth imitating. So do what good kids do and imitate your father. I think any parent in the room could tell you right now that our kids imitate us in all the good ways and the bad ways, right? Even if you don't have kids, the older you get, you realize you become more like your parents. Just give it time. You'll see it. You'll imitate your parents in all the good ways and the bad ways. It's a natural thing. Children become like their parents. So Paul says, in light of all of this, your heavenly father is perfect and is worth imitating. So do what good kids do, imitate your dad. But in order to imitate your dad, you have to have a relationship with the father to know how to imitate him. You have to be around him. You have to know what he's like. You have to experience him. You have to know his love. And the only way that that's possible is through Jesus, who died on the cross for your sins and rose again. And because he's alive, you can have eternal life. Listen, I don't want you to leave here today going, well, let me come back when I've got some of these rules down, when I think I've given up some lying and I can clean up the way I talk a little bit, then I'll come to Jesus. No, that's not what you need to do at all. You need a relationship before you need a bunch of rules. See, you need a relationship with the God who died for his enemies. You have to get to know the God who offers kindness and forgiveness. And so today, don't leave here thinking, well, I've got to follow a bunch of rules. No, you need a relationship with God first. And if you don't have that relationship with him, I want to give you an opportunity in just a minute to just surrender your life to him. We're not going to do anything weird or crazy or creepy, but I'm going to have you raise your hand as a sign of surrender, saying, God, I surrender my life to you. I want to have a relationship with you today. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.